0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, in his book, Habits of the Heart, Robert Bella described a woman he once interviewed. This is what he said. Sheila Larson is a young nurse who has received a good deal of therapy and who describes her faith as Sheila-ism. I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. Sheila's faith Bella goes on, has some tenets beyond belief in God, though not many. In defining my own Sheilaism, she says, it's just try to love yourself and be gentle with yourself. You know, I guess, take care of each other. I think he would want us to take care of each other. That's the end of the quote. Now, there are a number of interesting things in that quote that we could comment on. But for our purposes this afternoon, notice how Sheilaism doesn't have a place for the church, for the people of God. And that's not unusual. Sheila Larson is not alone, not anywhere near alone. Eighty percent of Americans believe that people should arrive at their own religious beliefs, independently of any church. Sixty percent go even further and say that churches are unnecessary. They might be helpful, But you can get a lot of what you want and what you think you need from religion through the TV and through the Internet these days. Who needs to go to church? I don't think we need to belabor the fact and go on and on about the fact that the church has fallen on hard times. Now the question is, how do we address this? An even more basic question might be, do we need to address this? After all, maybe too much attention has been given to the church in in the past. Maybe the church... Maybe these people are right. Maybe the church isn't necessary. Maybe we can do without it. Maybe you didn't have to come here this afternoon. Well, if we're going to find solid answers, we need to go to the Word of God. What does the Word of God say about the people of God? This afternoon, we're going to look particularly at who the Son of God is in relation to the people of God, as a way to answer that. And as I preach to you God's Word, using the Catechism as our roadmap, we'll answer the question, who is the Son of God to the people of God? And we'll see that He is their shepherd, their head, and their surety. Lord's Day 21 begins with an explanation of what we believe about the Holy Catholic Christian Church. Those words taken, of course, from the Apostles' Creed. We believe that Christ, the Son of God, is gathering, defending, and preserving for Himself a church chosen to everlasting life. And I want to focus on those three words. Gathering, defending, and preserving. What do those three words tell us about Jesus Christ and His relationship to the church, to the people of God? Well, those words are essentially taken straight out of Scripture, straight out of Romans 10. I mean, John 10. This is the the classic passage where Jesus explains that he is the good shepherd. And the fact that he is a shepherd reveals that there are sheep. You can't imagine a shepherd without any sheep. A shepherd is such by virtue of the fact that there are sheep under his care. A shepherd without any sheep is an ex-shepherd, or maybe a a retired shepherd. From John 10, we learn that the shepherd has his sheep. Notice how many times that expression is used in this passage. It's used in verse 2, in verse 3, verse 4, his sheep. And then in verse 14, I know my sheep. And verse 27, my sheep, listen to my voice. Well, according to John 10, the sheep belong to Jesus Christ. The shepherd is their Lord and master. And that tells us that we don't belong to ourselves. Rather, we belong to him, body and soul, both in life and in death. Right? Echoes of Lord's Day 1. The shepherd is also the one who gathers the sheep. In verse 16, he says that he must gather in other sheep who are not yet in the sheepfold. That tells us that he is the one who gathers, but it it also tells us that we are the ones who need to be gathered. We don't lead and we don't guide ourselves into God's flock. Someone has to do that for us. The shepherd is the one who defends the sheep. When he describes the hired hand in verses 12 and 13 of John 10, he says that the hired hand fails to defend the sheep and to protect them. So, by implication, you know, that's a bad shepherd. The the good shepherd goes out of his way to do what the hired hand fails to do. He protects against wolves that tells us that we also need His protection. By ourselves, we, we are helpless. We cannot stand, even for a moment. We have enemies, right? The devil, the world, and our own flesh. And they don't stop attacking us. We need a shepherd. We need a defender. And we have one in Jesus Christ. The shepherd is the one gathers the sheep, he defends the sheep, he also preserves the sheep. Thieves come to kill and destroy, says Jesus. But the good shepherd comes to bring them life. And not just mediocre life, but life in great abundance. The shepherd is the one who feeds the sheep. And sheep that are feeding, and being fed, They will be preserved and they will increase in health and they will increase in numbers. The shepherd is the one who preserves. That means that left to our own devices, we would flounder on that score too. We are sheep and we need a shepherd. Now it's important for us to note the the manner in which Scripture speaks elsewhere about the flock of God. From the rest of the Bible we learn that the church is the flock of God. In Acts 20.28, the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesian elders, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. The church is the place where the good shepherd gathers his sheep. The church is the place where the good shepherd defends his sheep. The church is the place where the shepherd preserves and feeds his sheep. Now, wouldn't you say that it's starting to sound as if the church is important after all? The next question and answer of the Catechism deals with the article from the Creed about the communion of saints. And here... As we consider this, we want to see Jesus as the head of his people. And this comes out in the fact that believers, all and everyone, are, are members of Christ. That language, members, that's meant to call forth a picture in our minds, a picture of a body, even a human body. A human body has parts or members. And that image also comes out of Scripture in passages like 1 Corinthians 12. And in that passage, in 1 Corinthians 12, it's mostly the implications of what it means to be the body of Christ that are being drawn out. Paul is interested in bringing the people in the church at Corinth closer together in unity. He wants them to recognize that they are one in Christ. They are united to Him to Christ, and thus also united to each other. But being united to Christ doesn't mean that everybody is exactly the same in the body of Christ. Not at all. In fact, there's diversity in this unity. Because every body has parts with different functions. Feet, hands, eyes, they all do different things in the body but yet they are all still part of one and the same body. And at this point, we should note that these words in 1 Corinthians are directed at a local church, the church at Corinth. Paul says in verse 27, we we didn't read that verse, but you can see it for yourself. Paul says that the church at Corinth is the body of Christ. And actually, if you do a, a study of this on your own, Every use of the expression, body of Christ, in the New Testament, every single use, is in connection with a concrete, local church. It's never used in the New Testament for the church in some kind of general, broad sense. And sometimes people will use that expression, body of Christ, in that way. We have to be careful to recognize that when Scripture uses this expression it gives priority to the local church. It is the local church. Churches like this one. First of all, where we find the communion of saints. The body of Christ. The image of a body implies a head. And here in 1 Corinthians 12, it's not stated explicitly, but from what Paul says elsewhere, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 5, we know that Christ is the head of the body. He's the head of the body. That means that He is in authority over the body. Christ is the head of the church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 puts it plainly. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. And so Christ is the head. And for us, that means that we acknowledge Him as the head. We look to Him for direction. We look to Him for guidance. Since we have union with Him, since we're His body, We seek to follow him wherever we can. Now, if we put that into practical terms, concrete practical terms, and address the question with which we began, we can think about Christ's attitude towards the church. And here we're thinking again of particular local churches, not the church in some broad general sense, whatever that might be. Now, not many people realize this, but Jesus wrote seven letters in the New Testament. Jesus wrote seven letters. Yes, we have the letters of Paul. We have some letters from John and from Peter. But we also have seven letters of Jesus. They're found in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation the last book of the Bible. In those seven letters, we find Jesus' attitude towards the church, or better yet, towards those seven churches, each of them individually considered. And it's readily evident in all these letters that he cares for these churches, that he loves them. For instance, listen to what he says to the church in Philadelphia. Now that's not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but Philadelphia and Asia Minor, in today, what is today Turkey. He writes to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3-9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. I have loved you, Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia. Jesus loved that local church. And the love expressed there reflects the love of God. That love which was really evident in the Old Testament, where God repeatedly tells His people, the Old Testament church, that He loves them. Now, how can anyone come along and say that the church is something we can be indifferent about? If Jesus loves the church, if Jesus loves the Langley Canadian Reformed Church, how can we not? How could we come along and say that being a member here, using our gifts, etc., being a living member, being all of that is superfluous. It's unnecessary. We don't need it to be a Christian. Loved ones, if you love the Lord Jesus, you've got to love what He loves. And He, the head of the church, He loves His church. You want to know how much He loves His church? He laid down His life for her, for you. He loves this church. And we should too. And we should show that not only in what we say, but also in what we do finally, we want to consider the Son of God as our surety. Now, surety is not a word that we hear very much anymore. You don't use that in everyday conversation. At least, I don't think you do. I tried to find a better word, but there isn't. So, we just have to go with that, and I have to explain it. A surety is someone who makes the guarantee. Someone who stands up and says, I will step in and speak up for and vouch for this person. And in the context of question and answer 56, Christ as our surety is found in those four beautiful words, because of Christ's satisfaction, because of Christ's redeeming work, God will no more remember our sins. Micah 7.19 we read, you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and Hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. And in Psalm 103, we read that God removes our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. When Scripture says that God will no more remember our sins, that means that those sins of ours will no longer be obstacles between ourselves and God no longer be barriers to a healthy, friendly relationship, a relationship where He blesses us. He will no more remember our sins. The same goes for our sinful nature with which we continue to struggle our entire life. Instead of remembering our sins and our sinful nature, God sees Jesus Christ He graciously grants us the righteousness of Christ so that we would never fall under His judgment. This is the gospel. Good news. As we heard this morning, all the righteous deeds of Jesus Christ are given to us as a free gift. They are imputed to us. And all our wickedness has been given to Him, imputed to Him. So that He could bear it on the cross. That He could remove the curse from us. This is what Martin Luther and others have called the great exchange. Christ took our sin and He gave us His righteousness. And that means that our sins are forgiven. We are released from the debt that we owe to God. We are declared positively righteous. All because of Christ. All because of grace. And we see that in John 10 as well, don't we? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Note that it says that four times in in, in John 10. And each time it says it there, Jesus says it, it's active. He lays down his life. Now, Brian McLaren, Steve Chalk, and other authors have said that this is a problem. Understanding Jesus' death as substitutionary atonement, that Jesus made atonement by being our substitute, they say that that's a problem because it makes God, the Father, out to be a cosmic child abuser. And who wants a God like that? He vengefully takes his wrath out on his son. His son becomes the helpless victim, the whipping boy. But that, brothers and sisters, that is not the biblical doctrine of substitutionary atonement. It's a caricature. Jesus made atonement by being our substitute. But he did this willingly and he did it out of love the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep john ten seventeen to 18 the reason my father loves me is that i lay down my life only to take it up again no one takes it from me but i lay it down of my own accord through Christ's actively laying down His life. He became our surety, the guarantee of the forgiveness of our sins. And before the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven, He entrusted the declaration of the forgiveness of sins to His church. He said in John 20.23, "...If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven." If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. What that means, you have to listen carefully, because this has the potential to be confusing. What that means, John 20, 23, is that the church has the power to declare the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't mean that the church actually forgives the sins itself. Only God can do that. But the church can and must declare, proclaim, announce God's forgiveness. The church is God's mouthpiece for that purpose. And how this all happens, it's not mysterious. It's not something that takes place in a secret room somewhere. This happens through the means of grace. Simply through the preaching of the Word, and through the administration of the sacraments. Through the means of grace, the forgiveness of sins is brought home to us authoritatively by Christ Himself through His church. So here too, when we talk about the forgiveness of sins, we need to have the church in view. The church is the place where the forgiveness of sins is announced by Christ's ambassadors. The church is the place where the forgiveness of sins is visibly portrayed with water and bread and wine. The church is the community of the forgiven. The church is the place where the forgiveness of sins lives and breathes. And This is the reason why we confess in Article 28 of the Belgic Confession, that there is no salvation outside of the church. Article 28, there is no salvation outside of the church. That simply means that the church is the place where one normally finds the forgiveness of sins, the administration of salvation. This is the reason why John Calvin and others have said that he who would have God for his father must also have the church for his mother. You need a mother to nurture you and to help you grow. And for believers, that mother is the church. And that point was made by Paul in Galatians 4.26 when he speaks about the Jerusalem from above, which is the mother of us all. Galatians 4.26 The Jerusalem from above. That's the place in the New Covenant era where God makes His name dwell. That's the church. The church, and again, keep focused on the local church, the assembly of believers. The church is not optional. It's not just a nice thing to have. It's an absolutely essential part of God's plan for our salvation. When we look to the Son of God, we also see how He relates to the people of God. He gathers, defends, and preserves them in local congregations of believers. He is their head, uniting them in one body, leading and guiding them with His Word. Also leading them with His Word to love the body, to love the church as He does. He is their surety, the one who has guaranteed the forgiveness of their sins and who announces that forgiveness through His church. When we see Jesus Christ, we see the church's one foundation, and we realize that the church, it matters after all, and it matters supremely. Let's pray. Our Lord God in heaven, Father, we thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus. We thank you that through him we have the forgiveness of our sins. Lord Jesus, we thank you for laying down your life for the sheep. Thank you also for being our shepherd, for gathering, defending, and preserving your people. Savior, we thank you for being our head and for uniting us as your body. Teach us, lead us, and guide us with your word. And help us too. Help us with your Holy Spirit to love your church. Also, this local church where you have placed us. We pray that you would bless our church and help us to grow in unity, holiness, and love. Please hear us for your own name's sake. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.